Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am genuinely delighted to have as my guest, Laura Di Benedetto. Have I got that right? Close enough. <laughs> Who is a best-selling author, a TEDx speaker and CEO. The last time Laura and I spoke, we had an absolute giggle, largely bemoaning the human condition and identifying why we are such a fucked up species. So. Laura, without any further ado, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background, please? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But you've never had an introduction like that before. (laughs) No, and I suppose I'll probably never introduce myself like this again. I'm part of the fucked up species, and I (laughs) used to be more fucked up, now I'm less fucked up. And I'm on a mission to help people to find the pathway to being happy, less screwed up, more complete and actually doing the stuff we want to do instead of moaning about wanting it, but not actually having it. I've had a really lengthy background filled with all kinds of adversity, overcoming stuff, doing things the wrong way, finding out lessons the hard way, just basically being a stubborn, rebellious person and sometimes just rebelling for the sake of rebelling. And that didn't really work for me. So I decided to do things better. I'm happier. I'm going to live longer, yada, yada. So now I'm on a mission to help others. So what was the catalyst to change, to decide to stop beating your head uh, against the wall and blaming the wall for your headache? (laughs) Maybe it was the accumulation of blood on the wall. I don't know. Uh, No, seriously. So I had built a pretty impressive career from 19 years old until 37. I had retired at 37, which would feel like to most outsiders like a pretty notable achievement, except I kind of had to sell my soul to do it. And then living in the aftermath of that, nobody ever talks about what happens to all these mythological figures when they sell their soul to the devil. Like what's, what's, what's like the sequel. Okay. So the sequel of this is that my health was falling apart. I was bleeding internally. My marriage was falling apart and I hated my life and that was all needless. And it just pissed me off. Frankly, I was really, really frustrated. I'm like, well, Okay, so, you know, I'm in America. The American dream is make your success and do all the things and why, you know, ride off into the sunset on your white horse and that's the end of it. But nobody talks about what happens after and the cost of getting there and if it's even worth it. I discovered the cost was high. It wasn't fully worth it. And then I'm just left with all these health problems, depression and self-loathing. And I'm like, well, that won't do. So as an entrepreneur and bona fide problem solver, I sought to solve the problem. Okay, so th- I mean that—that's a pretty terrifying story, particularly when there are so many people who equate success with material wealth, and they forget that there is a price. And you cannot take Laura, the human being, out of being uh, Laura, the businesswoman, Laura, the CEO, and uh, Laura, the spouse. So, what would you advise somebody who is on a single-minded mission to make potloads of money? And they forget everything else. Well, I guess the advice I would have given myself when I was younger, which is just take a minute and ask yourself why you're doing it. Why are you chasing this money? What, it, what do you think it's going to do for you that you don't already have? In my case, I thought that it would make me happier. And money does give you more access to do happy things. The problem is the happy doesn't last. Like going on vacation, you got to come home at some point. You buy a new sexy new car. At some point, the high wears off. You have a baby. At some point, the baby starts crapping everywhere and you're like, (laughs) you're not sleeping. Like the high wears off. You know, in my TED talk, I talk a lot about how the high wears off. And if you're chasing money, maybe because of you just need to be validated, you need to be important. You don't feel like you're going to matter in the world unless you have a lot of money. That's a problem. And a lot of us don't actually look for why we're doing what we're doing. We're just doing it. For me, and I'm totally fine admitting this, I was chasing validation externally versus looking for it internally. And that caused me to put myself through tremendous amounts of pain. So I'd encourage anyone to look at why the hell are you chasing this in the first place? That whole piece about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation is really very, very interesting. And especially when it then comes back to extrinsic and internal validation. So again, let's take a step back because it's fairly clear the direction that your life has taken now. But what I'd be curious about is how you currently define success. So differently than I used to. (laughs) So differently. 
I mean, money's nice and I have a lot of it. So that's great. And, you know, I'm married and I have a lot of things going right, but I also have a lot of things not going right. I still consider myself to be very, very successful as a human because I like who I am. I'm happy with the choices I've made. I'm proud of who I am as a person. I have courage. I do things that scare me. And at the end of the day, I'm pretty excited about this whole go as a human. And that to me is successful. The money and all that other stuff, the house, the marriage, these are nice to haves. They're not need to haves, but a solid relationship with yourself is a need to have that we don't often realize we need. And when you have that, I think that's when you are successful. Interesting. Okay. So in terms of drivers, it strikes me that you, you hit a wall with your health uh, when you retired at 37, and then you saw that there was a problem to be solved. Is it the problem itself that drives you and the opportunity to solve it as an intellectual exercise, or is it the helping of others? Initially, it was incredibly self-centered. I was in pain and I wanted my pain to go away. Once I was able to actually alleviate my pain and make it go away kind of permanently, did I actually even have the opportunity to see that I could serve others? And my own removal of the pain was like taking the earth off Atlas's back. It was such a huge weight that I was finally actually able to look around and see, look at all these other people in so much pain. Not only is it not about me, but it never was. And now that I'm not in pain anymore, now I can serve others. And oh my God, I really want to, because this whole happiness thing is pretty awesome. It's contagious. I want you to have it. (laughs) Okay. I'm with you on that. Certainly for me, what I find is that when I see an issue that really needs to be resolved, it's not the material reward. It's a bit like when you ask mountaineers, why do you climb mountains? Because they're there. And I'm getting a sense that you spotted this mountain and it just had to be climbed. And as you go through the journey, it starts to build and build and build and it uh, enriches your life. So talk to me about how this quest for happiness and helping others to find happiness has enriched your life. Well, it's honestly awesome. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's like the mountain where it's like, well, it's there. Guess I got to climb it. (laughs) Being an entrepreneur, I think you know this. We're problem solvers. You see a problem, it nags you. You want to solve it. You see a riddle, what's the answer? You see a puzzle, it's like, ah, where's the last piece? Got to do the corners, got to do the edges. Like you, you just want to do it. It's like a compulsion to complete, to do, to, to solve, whatever. There's a huge motivation just by virtue of the, the issue itself. But being able to even experience and really know more about the thing itself, it, it kind of led me down the rabbit hole. Familiar with um, Alice in Wonderland when she went sucked down the rabbit hole and followed the white rabbit? I'm a CRO for a company called White Rabbit, so I better be. (laughs) Yeah, I would say. So (laughs) this was very much the white rabbit for me because the more I went down the rabbit hole, the more I discovered and the more I saw and the more I discovered and learned and everything, the more I just got curious. And I'm still learning more and more all the time about human behavior, patterns of the mind and what we tend to do and our default behaviors and habit formation and why people do the things they do and trauma response and fear response and how people react to crises and how it all interrelates with um, mental habits and stuff like that. And it's, it's crazy. Like, you know, if you take a look at my first career, which is CEO of a marketing company, granted that's a moving target, but it's solvable. It's, it's pretty figure outable. The, awesome part about the human psyche is it's never really figure outable fully. It's, it's somewhat boundless. And by virtue of the fact that it's endless, I'm never bored. It's like, you know, how you're scrolling on Facebook, you keep scrolling and you keep getting new, 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 new. Every time you flick your thumb, that's what this is like. I keep flicking my thumb to find out more. And I keep, you know, discovering like all these wacky traits of human behavior and like looking at what society is doing now and how people are responding to fear and media and and this and that. And it's just, it's endless. I don't think I could possibly become bored by this subject at any point. So in your book, The Six Habits, in fact, I'll let you explain them uh, because that's probably better than me waffling on. 
Talk to us about The Six Habits. Sure. The book Six Habits is all about mental habit. It's It was born of, again, wanting to know why I was unhappy, right? And finding the solution to it because I was really just tired of how I was feeling. But also I started becoming a bit of a social scientist and studying human behavior. I was looking for patterns. I've always been that person who could easily find patterns, which is what makes you a good marketer, by the way. So being you know, a good pattern finder and identifier, I was just able to look at all this raw data of like the stuff that people do and also identify why people do it. And I had this mountain of data points of like, well, people, you know, they meditate, they, they exercise, they this, they that, they call their mom. And it wasn't any of those things. It was, it was actually why we do those things. And it came down to six core mental habits. Most of us live in the dark side of those. And well, we're living pretty empty, crappy lives. And we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves we're happy but we're not. We don't like who we are when we look in the mirror. We don't go after our dreams. We bully ourselves. We speak poorly to ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I'm sorry, but that's not the mark of a happy person. I wanted to actually be truly happy. So the kind of happiness that actually lasts, not the one that like you get high from when you're on vacation, the kind that exists when you don't have to do anything, buy anything, acquire anything, eat, have an orgasm, whatever to have. Happiness that just is, it's a baseline. So in finding these six patterns, I routinely see my work validated in some of the world's greatest teachers over and over, but no one's been able to identify the six particular patterns that I have in this particular combination. I mean, if you're looking for like the combination to like the master safe with all the riches inside, this is it. You know, we need to pay attention to six core things within three different buckets. The three buckets are how you treat, you know, how you relate to yourself, how you relate to life and how you relate to the stuff you got to do. So how you treat yourself and how you feel about yourself is kindness and acceptance. And these words are so basic and so simple, right? But then trying to make these your mental defaults, that's where the, that's where it gets tricky. And that's what I figured out. Then it's how you relate to life, which is gratitude, including in moments of chaos and turbulence presence, and then how you relate to what's going on and what you got to do, which is goodness and intention. So these six particular things, they're, they're six really basic words. And I love that they're basic, but in a sense, I hate that they're basic because I find that some people, they're like, oh, these are great. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, I do my gratitude list every night. I'm good. No, 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 no. Do not, do not confuse the fact that you've heard these words before for comprehension of what they truly mean. I almost wish they were more complicated words so people would take them as seriously as they should. These should be taught to kids when they're like three and four and they're I, not because their parents don't have them. I think what you're actually explaining here is that each of those words is a verb, but most people use them as a noun. Sure. You're a human being, not a human doing. And the whole idea of presence, being present, being grateful. Um, Being kind. It's a living in a state of being. So it's like, you know, yes, they're lovely virtues, but they're not virtues as far as what I'm talking about here. The thing that the happiest people have in common, which is what I really wanted to uncover, is these six pillars are their default ways of being. They're not just things they do occasionally. It's actually how they are. Like happy people are kind to themselves as a default. Doesn't mean they're not unkind to themselves, but it's rare, right? People who are just typical tend to live in unkind and the kindness is rare, right? And they're like, oh, well, I'm kind to myself. Yeah, occasionally, occasionally. No, 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 no. What we're talking about here is a default way of being, right? And the being is the point you made. You know, can you be kind to yourself as your default? You don't have to think about it, but like when you look in the mirror and you're 50 pounds heavier than you thought it'd be, thanks, COVID. <laughs> can you look at yourself with kindness and love? Can you be gentle with yourself? Can you offer yourself grace when you fuck up? Can you, can you look at yourself with acceptance and forgive yourself for all the dumb crap you've done? Can you fully and unconditionally love yourself without effort? That's the magic. It's the default status of these things. It's the living in the being. Like, can you live in a gratitude mentality? When the world locks down and you're trapped in your house, can you be grateful? When, you know, things go wrong or your dreams die or people you love die, can you live in gratitude? 
That's hard, right? That's really, really hard when it's not our mental default. The magic is the default. And that's what makes it all work. And that is the thing that the happiest people have in common. The risk of sounding mildly complacent here, everything that you've described is place that I've now found myself. It doesn't mean my world is perfect. I'm far from it. But Mm -hmm. um, it it took about, I think, till about 47, 48 Mm -hmm. to work that out. And I look back to the person I used to be and I was ultra competitive, which made me jealous. I was driven by money, which made me selfish. And I'm still not quite out of the selfish um, angle yet. If you speak to my wife and children, sorry, girls. No judgment. No judgment. The reality is I cannot remember a day where I was anything other than happy for at least five to eight years. Well, Um, I'm just validating my work. You know, some people arrive at these things organically and some people need my book to do it. Some people need to have a massive epiphany. Some, Some people need to have like a huge health scare and an awakening. Whatever it is, it seems, you know, my mom has actually gone through a number of health scares. And every time she has a big health scare, she has this big awakening and she just, you know, sees the world differently. And then life shows up. And because it's not really her default, it's just an awakening, she doesn't stay there. Right. And, and then the suffering goes on. But like we all are faced with that, that choice, all of us. And for you, you've had an awakening. But like I would challenge you to take a look at like, why were you so obsessed with money? Why? It's not that you were obsessed with money. What was it revealing in you? And what insufficiency were you trying to overcompensate for? Uh, There were so many, but it it was uh, looking at the Joneses and being jealous um, because I I wanted what they had and I wasn't happy in myself. I think I was overcompensating in the pursuit of that material stuff. Whereas uh, as I've grown older, the level of uh, satisfaction with who I've become and you know, I like the person who looks back in the mirror. But that took a while. I, I, mean, it, I think this was a journey that started around 26 when I had a very near-death experience. And I lost all tolerance for trivia immediately. And then... Amazing I how those things wake us up. Yeah. And that started the journey towards gratitude. It took a while to sink in. I'm a slow study. And... <laughs> <laughs> we're all stubborn and we all cling to the habits that don't serve us. And we all cling to our old way to, ways of being. Well, that then comes to the next subject, which is uh, around attachment and blind spots. Because I, I, in the work that I've done over the years, coaching and training, running teams, running a business, I see attachment as being such a harmful habit. The Buddha says, Attachment is the root to all misery. The the inability to let go. Surrender. Yeah. That's yeah. a paradox. Nah, it's it's a really difficult truth to live in. And you know, it's 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 something where I'm fine being transparent about like I still struggle with surrender. I'm a type A control freak, right? But why am I like this? It's because I am afraid of things happening to me that I don't approve of and that I don't want to happen to me, right? Like I want a certain outcome, blah, blah, blah. And and when you truly surrender and you let life be what it is, that takes a lot of courage. And honestly, when you practice and live and abide by these six concepts and they are a default part of your personality, it's actually easier for you to surrender it's really easy to admit when you're wrong. It's easy to say to someone, gosh, I'm, I missed that. I'm really sorry. I screwed up. You'll take more chances. You'll be less attached to things because you realize the things you, are not things you need. You'll, you'll be fine without them. And they're nice to haves, not need to haves. And when we can live in that understanding of the difference between the two, we're kind of free. So in your book, you say something, uh, the decision is the change. What do you mean by that? Well, if they say change occurs over a lifetime, it doesn't have to. It really doesn't. It doesn't have to take a long time. But the change itself, just the, the, that moment when things get different, it doesn't have to be gradual. Sometimes it can be abrupt. Like you, you had a health scare. Yours was a bit more abrupt. You decided to be different. And that in itself was the change. You decided this is no longer good enough. 
that was the same with me. You know, I didn't, I had a health scare. I wasn't on death's door, but bleeding internally and having my marriage falling apart and hating yourself, pretty shitty. So I decided in that moment, I will be different. I don't know how, but I'm going to figure it out. And, and it was the decision to put one foot on the path, just one. And then the decision to put another and another and another. And then when I felt like quitting, no, I remember what the other way felt like. Fuck that. I don't want to do that anymore. It's the decision that it's no longer good enough. And that is the change. Does that make sense now? It does. Okay. So if we then dig deeper into um, that whole conversation around positive self-acceptance, and uh, we look for the, uh, the clues in terms of where we don't accept ourselves. I'm guessing from uh, hearing you, it's things like negative self-talk, the tone of that in a dialogue, judgment, and the uh, and I'm not worthy script, um, those kind of things. Is that fair? It's fair, but you're blending the two subjects. So kindness is how you treat yourself. Acceptance is how you feel about yourself. And they can feel like they're the same thing, but they're sisters, not twins. They're they're very much different because your, your opinion of yourself is separate from your behavior toward yourself. If you treat yourself with thoughts, love, and words of, you know, kindness, those are your actions. And that's how you're treating yourself. But if you're if you still hate yourself, right? That's how you feel about yourself. And maybe your kindness can help you learn acceptance. Or maybe if you truly love yourself, but you've got this terrible habit of just being terrible to yourself, maybe you know your acceptance can help you become kind to yourself. They're very supportive habits that work in harmony with each other, but they're two different things. You know, how I feel about myself is I like me very much. I am proud of the person I've become. I don't give two figs about how, how much money I have or don't have, how many awards I have or don't have. It doesn't matter. And the mistakes I've made, I fully own them. I'm fine apologizing to others, making amends and being humble. And I don't need to be tough. It's okay for me to be small and screw up. And that takes courage. And that is a constitution of a really good self-acceptance. It's like, no, I'm interesting spiritual being riding around in this crazy meat suit and doing this whole human thing. And it's weird and I'm making mistakes and it's actually okay. It's part of the human thing. And I accept me and I love me. And in a separate column, I am going to say nice things to myself. I'm going to think nice thoughts about myself and I'm going to do nice things for myself, which means when I want a piece of cake, I'm going to have the freaking cake because denying myself isn't kind and be like, oh, I can't have that. I'm going to gain weight. No, no, no. Eat the cake. You could die tomorrow. Like I don't speak to myself poorly. I look in the mirror and, you know, due to um, lots of different things that have gone in the last year, COVID being one of them and lockdowns and moving and blah, blah, blah. I put on some weight and I look in the mirror and I'm like, still sexy. Don't care. I love me. And it's like, they're tied together. They have such, the kindness and the acceptance have such a powerful relationship and importance with each other, but they're very much not the same. Okay. So let's delve into presence then as a habit. Sure. So you don't know how to opt into things and fully choose them, including misery, especially misery. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be upset. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to go through what I'm going through. I had two miscarriages. They sucked. It was very physically and emotionally painful, right? And I know lots of other women who've gone through that. And the inclination is, I don't want to feel this way. But what if we decided, I do want to feel this way. I do want to experience this because it's part of the human experience. And what if, what if I chose this? What if I allowed myself to fully immerse myself in this moment and this tragedy and grow and learn, which I did. It sucked, but I got a lot out of it. Same thing with all the tragedy I've experienced in the life, but also all the good things. Like I remember when a friend of mine was pregnant and we were doing like our daily walks around the neighborhood and we talked about how everything Everything, everything, everything is temporary. The pregnancy is temporary. Her being uncomfortable in the morning sickness is temporary. Labor is temporary. Her child being an infant is temporary. And her child even living with her is temporary. So for the bad things, yay, it's temporary. For the good things, ah, it's temporary. 
but the only salvation we have in the in the fleeting nature of how life is both good and bad is recognizing that the only moment that really matters is this one that's it like we think you know i mean again think about this whole like covid lockdowns and this and that that's temporary at some point it'll go away and we don't know what tomorrow brings and we steal a lot of today's happiness by focusing on tomorrow or lamenting over the past the only moment that matters is this one it's actually the only one that exists because the past, yeah, supposedly it existed and tomorrow is no guarantee. It's all just like this big space illusion, right? <laughs> if we can really just acknowledge the only moment that we're actually experiencing is this one and therefore the only one that matters, put your damn phone down, talk to the person that's right in front of you, opt into the moment, face your tragedies, feel them, live them, have your crying fits, have your moments and experience your joys fully. Quit being checked out, you know? So happiness and misery are choices. Yep. They're also part of life. All the habits appear based on your thesis to be choices. You can either opt in or opt out. That's right. But Uh, they're not choices if we don't know that they're in front of us. When we've been given an opportunity to become aware of the six habits and really look within ourselves, that's when we're faced with the choice. If we don't know there's a choice in front of us, it's very difficult to know what the hell we're choosing from. It's like walking into a restaurant and no one's giving you a menu. You don't know what you can have because you haven't been made aware of it. So my big mission and why I do shows like yours is to give people the awareness that there is actually a choice and this is where and how you choose it. When you have that choice, yes, it is easier to actually do something about it when you're you know, actually aware that you can choose differently and how you can choose differently. But otherwise, you're just pre-programmed by culture, society, parents, teachers, family, brothers and sisters, et cetera, et cetera, that basically push and pull us and mold us into the person that we think we wanted to become, right? We, we think that it was our design, but it really wasn't. Like how many people grow up to be Christian just because they were raised that way? Was that really your choice? Or were you indoctrinated to feel that way by those that raised you and felt that way? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's a matter of stepping away from the conditioning we've had and realizing, oh, I can choose differently and I didn't know that. Perhaps there's a lot of women, young women in particular, who watch their mothers look in the mirror and say horrible things to, the, to themselves. Like mom would look in the mirror and be like, oh my God, I'm so fat, blah, blah, blah. So little Susie Q grows up to realize this is how I'm supposed to treat myself. We learn, observe behavior. And if we don't have really good role models, how the hell are we supposed to learn and even properly choose these things? The only time that we ever have the invitation to learn a higher and better path is when we listen to things like this conversation, read books like anything from like Eckhart Tolle and, you know, I don't know, pick an amazing author that like offers us an enlightened point of view and something that's different that we wouldn't have gotten any other way. And we can truly choose it or not choose it. Very interesting. Okay. Your definition of goodness is very different. You define it in the book as goodness is the habit governing energy and what we allow, invite, and build into our lives. It's the habit of actively removing toxic and harmful, though often gratifying energy from our lives and adding positively uh, and actively adding positive beneficial energy into our lives. Go into more detail about goodness. Sure. Goodness is simple math, basically. It's garbage in, garbage out. Just think of basic programming. If you want to feel like garbage, by all means, like welcome all these toxic people and things into your life, like the news, that's a cesspool. Uh, toxic, negative people, by all means, you want to feel good, don't hang out with them. You got to be mindful of the energy that's coming at you. All of life, all of existence is vibrational energy. That's what it's comprised of. And if you ever remember science class, energy doesn't cease to exist. It simply moves. It's kinetic energy. It's the, it's the basis of science. So if you understand that everything is energy, and you are very mindful of being the guardian of the energy that is coming in and being a proper gatekeeper, you will repel the things that you know damn well are bad for you, like stop binging the news. Get get yourself off Facebook. Get away from Uncle Bob who won't stop talking about Donald Trump at the dinner table. 
like make your choices about what your input is going to be and repel things that are harmful to you, including friends that have no boundaries, bosses that take advantage of you, maybe a spouse that just doesn't respect you and won't even when you express how you wish to be treated. These are the negatives. But then it's also your responsibility to add the positive and not just allow the good, but invite the good. You have to realize what actually adds to you. Maybe it's reading. Maybe it's quality time with yourself. Maybe it's being in nature. Maybe it's just going for a walk outside. Maybe it's calling your mom more often. Who knows? Like everybody's going to have a different definition of like what's positive and what's not. Like for some people, some folks want to talk about Donald Trump at the at their dinner table and that's positive. Some people don't. Like you have to be a guardian of whatever your energy is and decide what is harmful to you and be very self-aware and make sure that you aren't fooling yourself into thinking that your autopilot is helpful because our autopilot is something we don't generally notice. Like, oh, well, I've always watched the news, so it's not hurting me. Really? Is that Um, why you got high blood pressure? Really? Go on. (laughs) But again, this then speaks to another really damning indictment of the human condition, which is in transactional analysis, they talk about okay, not okay. And um, we seem as a species to feed of seeing other people being more not okay than us. The news, social media, uh, drama, reality TV, soap operas, cartoons, whatever, they they all seem to be about watching other people suffer and with a a mild sense of schadenfreude saying to yourself... Mild. No, <laughs> no I, I would been, say it's moderate to severe. <laughs> I, I've been in England too long. I'm a master of petty understatement. So, <laughs> it just seems that so often we're driven away. From, as a social species, we do our best work at our truly most creative, where we collaborate. But we seem to have this tribalism, uh, this them versus us, the joy of seeing someone else suffer, knowing that it's not us or ours. What the hell is that all about? (laughs) Well, we humans are animals in clothes, and we're all basically just giant adults walking or giant children walking around in adult suits, right? And, you know, it's things (laughs) like all of the, the pretense of, eating out and clothing and houses and this and that, that makes us feel like we're really, you know, better than a lot of, a lot of the animalistic ways that we actually are. Mm -hmm. However, when we acknowledge this animalistic tendency to find comfort in our situation by comparing it to that of others, to schadenfreude, to everything else, it's actually empowering to realize, A, oh, I'm doing that. That's interesting. B, I don't have to do that because I know that I can find security and comfort in my world just by living my own best life. And I don't need to source my happiness from others' misery. A lot of people live in that comparative state, a lot. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of people in the world right now that only believe that they can be successful against rising against their feelings of being oppressed by oppressing someone else. And that's really just, it just furthers the pain. The, the real transcendent behavior is when we can actually acknowledge our animalistic tendency and acknowledge it to the level of deciding that we don't need to do that and choosing a different path. That's where things like self-acceptance and truly loving yourself and being kind to yourself, living in profound gratitude, you stop giving a single fuck about what anyone else does because you realize that None of this matters. I mean, can we just put a, like, put a fine point on this? Yeah. You and I are like two people out of like 7 billion plus, and we're just on a little rock floating through space. I'd love to tell you that you matter. You don't. Absolutely. I'd love to matter. I don't fucking matter. How yeah. absolutely liberating. It yeah. doesn't matter what I do, but my experience of what I do matters to me and I get to choose it. This was really interesting. My my dad always used to feel claustrophobic and panicked whenever he was in open space looking up at the sky at night and the vastness of the universe. 
To me, that's the most liberating thing there is. The idea that I absolutely mean nothing. It's just fucking fantastic. Um, Isn't it? Yeah. Um, People strive their whole lives to be important when you finally realize that the true liberation is realizing how absolutely delightfully irrelevant you are. You're like, holy shit, I'm free. I've had a couple of people tell me recently, it seems to be all about you, but it really isn't. I'm genuinely curious. And I'm certainly not afraid of expressing my opinions. And But actually, I spend a huge amount of my waking life asking questions of fascinating people and learning and learning and learning. And that's great. I had someone uh, get really narky with me a couple of days ago telling me that it was all it's always about Marcus and actually it's not I'm I just don't give a fuck and I'm tired of uh, even considering that I matter I'm irrelevant in virtually every conversation I have I'm fascinated and I'm in the moment it just strikes me that we are dead for forever why would you waste a moment of that being angry upset jealous uh, bitter judging it just seems crazy that you you would waste a second because chances are you've only got one fucking trip it's one way and you're dead forever absolutely i think i mean you know i'm hardly a scholar on theology and stuff like that but like i don't know again with the whole kinetic energy you and i are made of energy i don't think that we cease to exist but i think we cease to exist in this conscious form but you know we return to a collective consciousness that's what i that's what I believe. And I would say with all the theories out there, I am more than likely wrong and I'm okay with that. I won't find out till I cease to exist or not. I don't know, but whatever, it doesn't matter. I love what you're saying though. And like the whole thing about staring out into the vastness of space. Like, so I used to live on the island of Maui and I would drive down to uh, McKenna and like sit in Starfield and like <laughs> lie on my back and just stare at the stars. And like the crazy thing that we don't realize is you're not looking up at the stars. You're actually looking out at yes, the stars absolutely. and earth is just our gigantic spaceship and the irrelevance is so amazing and the irrelevance of us all and it just leads to this profound feeling of connectedness and reverence if you allow it to and again why the hell would you choose to your point to be miserable if you have this tiny like tiny like minute like spit in the wind experience why the fuck would you waste it hating yourself or thinking that what the joneses do matter or this dumb shit like money is even relevant none of it is relevant none of it matters nothing not having money affects you directly up to a very small amount i mean seventy thousand dollars or something like that is the received wisdom and then pretty much all of your needs are met and what, what I found really liberating as I've got older is I want for nothing. There are things that I could have. I've, I quite fancy an Aston Martin. But in all honesty, I had a five liter convertible. Within 13 days, I was bored and wanted to hand it back because I was driving up to London and the average speed I managed to get up to is 11 miles an hour. You need a five liter convertible to go 11 miles an hour in traffic. Virtually everything that I've ever acquired has meant nothing to me. Virtually everything I've accomplished, largely through scar tissue, has been really worthwhile because it was through the stress, the suffering, the panic, and the, the wild roller coaster and the, the learning. And that's it wasn't the accomplishment itself, it was the journey to it. Yeah. It's the whole, again, using your metaphor of like mountain climbers. They don't climb the mountain to get to the top. They climb the mountain to climb the mountain. It's the same reason, like, you know, I've gone through lots of things in my life. I've started businesses. I've done this. You know, it's not because I had a goal in mind. It's because I wanted to do the damn journey. Even when I was writing my TED Talk, I was still under the impression that it was about the talk itself. No, it was about writing it. It was about rehearsing it. The final delivery, no offense to the TED organization and all of it, but because of the magic of everything that led up to it, it was actually a, a bit like anticlimactic because the real joy was in creating it, not delivering it. And it's, it's just crazy. Like I even think about like so many of the experiences that I've had and probably that you've had in your life where like, how many times have you gotten to do something really, really awesome? You didn't seek to create it. It wasn't an accomplishment. It wasn't 
an acquisition. It was just a lived moment that was fucking extraordinary. Like that moment, like I'm telling you, like I remember my friend Nicole and I went down to McKenna and we sat on the roof of her car in the middle of the new moon. There was no light out, just like just the stars. And we watched the Milky Way and we just sat there just talking about life and just remarking on just life and the cosmos and everything else. That's a moment I'll remember. And it wasn't anything I earned or worked for. I was just so damn immersed in it and I made it happen. This again comes to that next habit, which is presence. I think one of the most useful lessons I ever learned was to be fully present. Now, I really struggle with it. I'm sorry, girls, but I I struggle with it at home because I'm so often thinking about all the fabulous things that have gone on and what's coming next. That I would love a little bit of help with because when I'm working and when I'm having podcast conversations, I'm absolutely in the moment. So what advice could you give to a bad dad and a bad husband who's got that one little bit of negative self-talk? Well, I would reassure you, you're most likely neither. The fact that you even asked the question shows how much you care. Presence is a difficult thing to come by, particularly in the world that we live in. We've got fucking glowing rectangles all around us, clamoring for our attention. Studies are showing that we get something like 200 advertisements a day, blah, blah, blah. Like we are living in a world currently where we are specifically being manipulated on purpose every day to coerce money out of our pockets. That's exactly, as far as advertisers are concerned, that's our purpose. It isn't our purpose, but it is to them, right? We're a cash crop. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, even if you look at somebody like Klaus Schwab and his gigantic agenda with the World Economic Forum, we're basically all consumers in his gigantic plan for the world being conducted as business, not the world being conducted as humanity. So if you look at things that way, it's not A, really your fault that you're this way. It's kind of like, that's what other people have been coercing you into doing. However, you do have a choice. One, you can break out of it by incredible self-awareness, which it seems like that's where you are. Step two is really decide what you want alternatively and take a look at, well, where am I not present? Why am I not present? What are my reasons for being checked out in these moments? Is it excitement? Is it exuberance? Can I channel it in a different way? What am I missing out on? What is the cost of me not really being present? Is it truly bothersome? Can I do better? In what ways would I do better? What is the benefit to myself? What is the benefit to others? I mean, seriously, be your own damn interrogator and decide if it's even freaking worth it. You might be happy exactly as you are, but if you are asking me these questions, you're obviously not, and you know there's room for improvement. So become your own self-analyst. I'm just getting a really warm glow inside, which I haven't had for a very long time because you ask as many questions as I do as quickly. So thank you for that. That's just a real thrill. (laughs) (laughs) My brain works. Okay. So let's just dig a little bit deeper because I'm going to carry the theme on. I I know I'm at my happiest when I learn. And I learn the most when I'm talking to people. The best question I ever learned was who? Who knows this stuff? Who's the best in the world at this thing? Who solved this problem before me? And I wish I'd worked on that a lot sooner because I think I'd have made a lot more progress a lot quicker and learned more. Those are the moments in life that I'm definitely at my happiest. Where Curiosity I'm... clearly makes you happy. And you know what? Maybe you can even be present with your curiosity and maybe not you know, give yourself shit for getting distracted. Just maybe acknowledge what you'd like to improve, create a path, and then just do it. That's all. We make it hard. It doesn't need to be hard. Like for me, I know the price of my distractions. I have attention deficit disorder, which makes it hard for me to pay attention to fucking anything, right? It's like, ooh, shiny thing. But you know, smartphones distract me. I notice that Facebook and social media distracts me. So I, what I do is I make sure that I leave my phone in my bedroom most of the time. I never bring my phone to the dinner table. I have taken all social media off my phone. So that allows me to be more present with my husband. You know what this also means though? It means that the price I've had to pay for not having my phone on me all the time is that I don't have as many pretty pictures of the sunsets that I go look at because I'm just experiencing them. 
And I don't have pictures of all the neat little froggies and toads that I found in my yard because I'm busy just fishing them out of the pool. And what I'm doing instead is I'm sacrificing the photos for memories. That's a price I'm happy to pay. It's like, oh, well, until my memory fades, and I'm probably not going to look back at my photo reel anyway, because whoever does, I, I think memories are better. So I'm going to choose that. And I don't watch as much TV, fucking idiot box. Like I just don't watch as much TV as I used to. And I tend to have stronger boundaries now. It's like, well, you know, no, I'm not going to do this. Maybe I'll watch one episode of the show with you, hubby, so we can do this together. But you know, or let's go for a walk. Oh, it's raining. It's pouring outside. Let's go for a walk. Let's enjoy the rain and being present. It's really choices and deciding is the juice worth the squeeze. In the case of not having a phone filled with photos of me and my hubby and frogs and sunsets, that's fine, but I've got a head full of them. You touched on the subject of boundaries and you say that they're largely misunderstood. A life without boundaries tends to mean that people become bullies, narcissistic, hedonistic, they take advantage and they uh, might rescue, which is helping without boundaries, because I think you can overhelp, it can be unwelcome. And so I'm curious to uh, get your thoughts on boundaries, because certainly in life and work, boundaries are really important. And certainly in sales, if you don't establish clear boundaries, you can easily be taken advantage of. And um, you'll find yourself you know, probably out of uh, a job. So talk, talk to me about boundaries from your perspective. I think boundaries are something that people largely don't understand. And particularly women, we've been, we've been taught that we need to be pretty, we need to be nice, we need to be cooperative, and we need to be agreeable. And largely the notion of boundaries kind of goes up against those things because it means saying the almighty no. The thing that I really want to invite people to understand about boundaries is boundaries are simply rules of engagement. And if you can think of boundaries as just rules of engagement and something, it's not something you, boundaries are not something you do to someone else. They're just telling someone else, this is how I want to be treated. Don't do these things and we'll always get along really well. It's just the rules of engagement. That's all. And if you've ever tried to exist in a relationship where the rules were unclear, it's kind of unfair because you're going to step on a landmine at some point and it's going to cause unnecessary pain. And if boundaries were actually established up front beyond just the assumed, it would be really valuable, you know, and you'd probably have a better experience and a better friendship. So whenever I make a new friend, for example, I am generally pretty clear about what I expect. I don't always come right out and say, hi, we just met and we're new friends and these are my expectations because that's obnoxious. Talk about my values in the conversations that we have. Like I let people know how important it is for me that I am friends with people of high integrity. I would much rather you fuck up and own it than you lie and cover it up. If you're going to make plans with me, it is imperative to me that you communicate clearly and effectively about your intent to keep the plans, plans or if you need to change them. Last minute blow-offs means that we'll probably never talk again, just so we're good. I have no problem being this clear because what it does is it helps the other person realize, oh, these are the ways that I can get along with her really well. And this is how I can love her and keep her in my life. And she matters to me. So I want to do the things that make her happy, right? And when I get to know someone else's boundaries, it's really, really important. Like I know picking on my poor mom, mama dear cannot take a joke. She can pick on me, but I cannot pick on her. Even if I'm teasing, I know this about her. And even though I think it's a major double standard, sorry, mom. <laughs> Like, I know this about her, so I'm really mindful to just take the teasing and not fly it back at her because I know it hurts her. So it's just useful to know. But in the case of things like work and marriages and things with children, things with friends, whatever, we need to be really clear with the people around us what we will and will not tolerate because people will always, always do what they feel is appropriate and we, not, we might not agree. And we will be training people how to treat us unless we tell people how to treat us. So if you train your boss to expect you to always work late and never complain, you have just set an expectation that that is what you will tolerate. Meanwhile, if your boundary is that you need to punch out at five so you can go be with your kids, you actually need to take responsibility for that and state that. A lot of people assume that boundaries are harmful or I'm going to lose my job if I have boundaries. 
if you're in a relationship that only seems to work when you get taken advantage of, it doesn't really work. So maybe you should evaluate that. But like, you need to figure out how to state your boundaries once you've agreed that boundaries are important. And I work with someone now who is very aggressive about setting boundaries. And she's like, well, I'm not apologetic about my boundaries. I'm like, no, I'm not suggesting that you should be. But perhaps you need to be gentle with others in expressing your boundaries because they don't need to be so harsh. Boundaries don't need to be walls. They just need to be rules of engagement and you can express and make it clear for other people how to engage with you without being so freaking off-putting. So (laughs) you can. I mean, you could even say to a boss, like, hey, you know, I know you like it when I stay late. However, I'm just not able to do that. I need to have a family life. And in order for me to have a good balance here at work and do a good job, I must rest and have balance in my life. So I insist, I need to be leaving at five. If that doesn't work for you, and you need me to stay later, either we need to shift my work hours or I need to find different employment. That's all. And you need to like actually let things be what they are. Most people are afraid of saying what they need to say because they're so terrified of loss. What if you could actually build your confidence to realize that you can replace whatever it is you think you might lose? You'll lose the fear of loss. What I'm hearing here is the importance of being rigorously authentic of being obvious. Nothing goes without saying. Don't be subtle. Be gentle, be kind, and be clear. Um, Clarity is absolutely key. Ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups. If you want to create mismatched expectations, disappointment... um, Assumptions too? Like, that's not helpful. And I think it's also really important as a human being to understand it's not about the thing, it's about the relationship. And if, if, we, if we forget that, then we risk being alienated or alienating others. And that's on us. You've got to take ownership. And I, I think it's really important to be very specific about what you do and don't want. But we very often carry a lot of baggage talking about specific topics, whether it's uh, sex, race, gender, uh, what we want. Very often, you know, um, I, I think a lot of people have been brought up to feel guilty about expressing what they want. And uh, as a result, there's always this hidden undercurrent and uh, of what's not being said. And that's the guilt of omission. And I, th- I think life and in work, I've found that not stating those things inevitably is part of being ambiguous again. And then you can't blame the other person because you are too much of a coward and an idiot to tell them what you want. And this, again, uh, then feeds into this terror of all forms of conflict. I think conflict is one of the most useful and valuable assets I've ever had in my life, if it's constructive. If it just degenerates into personal name-calling, that's not constructive. But I've learned so much from being criticized And I welcome that. It just strikes me that we seem to be very brittle as a species. We we don't flex and bend. We just snap. We don't have to be that way, though. I mean, that's kind of the whole foundation of my work. Like, It gives us ultimate fluidity and flexibility when we can actually have that solid constitution relationship with ourselves, with life, and with the things that we have to do. Like, we, We stop being so brittle. And we actually, we realize that you know, in expressing a boundary, we don't need to be defensive about it, you know, and treat the person like they're going to do something to us and that our boundary expression is doing something to them. Boundaries are not combative. It doesn't need to be this whole thing where, uh, you know, it's, it's horrible and scary. Now, just imagine, dear listeners, you know, you pretend for a moment you've got all the confidence in the world and you're not feeling threatened in the slightest by someone else. And you know that they're not feeling threatened by you. You can just easily say, I can't do this thing that you're asking me to do. That's all. And it goes well. Imagine that. But when we envision the other person as as our enemy or they're, they're out to hurt us, that's where people get combative about expressing their boundaries. That's when people get combative about responding to someone else's boundaries. When people, they just feel attacked by the expression of or the request of boundaries, right? It's 
life, this whole thing called life, the whole irrelevance of it, it gets so much easier when we actually work on ourselves and quit being so afraid of our own shadow and afraid and afraid and afraid and afraid and afraid of conflict of what if they don't like me? What if they're mad at me? Oh no, what if I get fired? Like, what if, what if you die tomorrow? Would you really want this to be your last day? Really? <laughs> I think that's a fabulous question to end on. So we've, I'm setting a boundary. Laura, t- t- tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. And I, I think I've, um, <laughs> I can mind read, but I won't. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Laura, age 23, invincible, knows everything. What advice would you give her that you know she'd have ignored? I shouldn't ignore No, no, that shouldn't, but probably would have ignored. Oh, the advice I did get when I was in my 20s. Work on yourself. Life gets easier. I give this advice to entrepreneurs and young people alike and a lot of my clients. If you ever wish to do more, you ever wish to have more, you must first become more. When you do that, everything easily falls into place. I never got that message. Everything was hard because I efforted my way into everything because I refused to work on myself. <laughs> now I work on myself and everything's easy as hell. I should be stealing that. Stop efforting yourself. Excellent. I'm a firm believer that um, you should hire salespeople for high intelligence and laziness. Minimum effort, minimum loss of life. Um, and uh, <laughs> it, yeah, do less but better on purpose. I think the challenge is that we, we strive too hard. And in doing so, we miss the beauty of, of life and what's going on and the simplicity of it all. Okay, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, apart from obviously your fabulous TED Talk? <laughs> I mean, my book too. And, and your plug, book. Plug, plug, plug. The Six Habits. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I mean, I think you should actually listen to yourself, like bust out your journal and start writing and like start listening and, and to yourself and dig around in your own head. I mean, I'm such a huge fan of like books on spirituality. Like I love Eckhart Tolle. I love, um, honestly, Jen Sincero. She wrote the You Are a Badass books. I mean, I love Brene Brown. Like there's so many incredible books out there and so many wonderful thought leaders really just introducing big, powerful ideas that can change our lives. I mean, shoot, watch the entire TED lineup. There's so many great speakers that have done TED Talks. That's why I wanted to do one. I was like, I want to be one of them. (laughs) Like, I just remember watching these talks like, and just like learning these new ideas because TED is all about one big idea, right? And I would sit there and do the dishes and listen to one big idea and one big idea. And I felt my brain just expanding and growing and becoming this massive sponge. Like if you become a thirsty student of life, any teacher, especially yourself, will delight you. Have you ever seen Kiran Beersethi's TED Talk? Maybe. What was it about? One idea, one week, change a billion lives. Nope, missed that one. Send it to uh, me. That, that is just breathtaking. She's a junior school teacher in India, and she was teaching her kids about child labor. So she had them work for a day rolling incense. And then the next day, she sent them out into the city to talk to business owners about child labor. And uh, she now has, I think it was seven cities that shut down once a month and the kids run them. And um, it's just... Man, that's cool. See, one big idea. I love it. Every time I think about it, I get a thrill up my spine. Um, Excellent. So Laura, how can people get hold of you? If you go to Amazon, you can get my book and the audio book and the um, digital version, The Six Habits. The word six is spelled out. You can also go to thesixhabits.com, T-H-E-S-I-X habits.com, thesixhabits.com. Check it out. Excellent. I'm going to get your name right this time. Laura de Benedetto. Nope. 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 How do I say that? I've been I've been reading it for the last ten minutes, panicking that I'm going to bollocks it up. Go on, say it. Benedetto. Benedetto. It is a, oh, for fuck's sake. It can't be that simple. 
Okay, so Laura de Benetta, de be, be. Laura, thank you so much. You sound like one of the customer service reps every single time I have to call the bank or this or the that when they're like, hi, Mrs. Can we just go with Laura, please? Okay. <laughs> well, I've, I've had every version of my name under the sun. My favorite one was going to Poland. I was uh, recruiting over there. And I went in to check in at my hotel and they said, hello, Mr. Tsautsi because the C is a TS over there. So that was the only time I've ever had an original one. Um, That is original. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Excellent, Laura, thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy. Truly a pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you'd like to be a guest, then please email me, marcus at laughs-last.com. And please recommend people who you think would be interesting guests. Now, please like, comment, share, and subscribe, and make sure you tag someone who's a miserable bastard, because God knows they need the help. Make sure they listen to this episode. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.